Hello and welcome to the Hustle and Bustle podcast. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, the Yugambeh people, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. My name's Nicole Bennett, and I'm an urban and regional planner and I'm the host of this podcast. Each episode I bring you conversations with city shapers and urban thinkers, leaders in the field of urban planning and city building. I'm located here on the beautiful Gold Coast in Australia. We're one of the host cities for the Brisbane 2032 Olympics and Paralympics. The next 10 years is being described as the golden decade for our city and our region. The conversations on this podcast help us understand the opportunities and challenges ahead. So let's take a minute from our busy hustle and bustle day and let's have a great conversation. And welcome to episode 15 for this year. It's hard to believe we're already halfway through the year, a very different year to the past couple, with things returning to somewhat of a new normal, which is quite refreshing. And this week has seen the release of new data from the 2021 census, which is like Christmas come early for planners and city shapers as we look to understand our communities. What shifted within them? What's remained the same? Have our projections been proven right or wrong? And interestingly for me, there's been this huge shift in demographics between baby boomers and millennials, which are now equalising in numbers for the first time in history. And I think this signals a real shift in some of the power dynamics between the generations. But that's not what I wanted to discuss in this episode. Instead, I'm thrilled to be joined by a very special guest today, an expert in planning and a leader of our profession for almost 40 years. Michael Papa Giorgio is the director of an urban planning consultancy based in Brisbane. He has 40 years experience in the industry, including senior executive planning roles in the state and local government in both Queensland and Victoria. Michael's held important roles such as senior urban planning director and manager at Brisbane City Council and Gold Coast City Council, which are two of Australia's largest local governments in terms of population. At the Gold Coast, Michael was responsible for the development and implementation of the 2003 planning scheme, which guided our city's massive population growth for nearly a decade. At Brisbane City, Michael led the full range of planning policy and regulatory control for the city, including the implementation of major urban renewal projects and innovative public realm and open space interventions. Michael was the inaugural planner in residence at QUT, Whilst at QUT, Michael was involved in teaching and lecturing to planning students at all levels, as well as participating in QUT's international project teams. Michael is a fellow of the Planning Institute of Australia and has held active roles in peers' policy development and review education and professional development initiatives. He has also served on various PIA planning award judging panels, Michael was the chair of the PIA Queensland Education Committee for 10 years and was a member of the PIA National Education Committee from 2015 to 2019. Michael is currently a member of the PIA National Registered Planner Assessment Panel. Throughout his career, Michael has maintained a great interest in public realm and open space policy and implementation. He's been responsible for the planning and delivery of numerous centre improvement and urban renewal projects and programs, all with a significant public art component, specifically in Brisbane, Gold Coast, South Melbourne, St Kilda and Frankston, as well as in regional areas. Michael has been invited to participate in various design advisory panels for major projects here in Queensland, as well as Victoria, as well as uh, a member of the South Bank Corporation Board, 
who's responsible for the management and improvement of Queensland's premier urban leisure and recreation precinct. Michael was a member of the Arts Queensland Art and Place Advisory Board, where he was involved in the review and recommendation of date projects for public art delivery throughout Queensland. And he's recently been appointed to the City of Gold Coast's new public art advisory group to help implement the city's public art policy. I know that's a long list, but that's only a glimpse of all that Michael has achieved throughout his long and impactful career. So I'm really pleased to have him on the podcast today to learn more about this career, what it means to be a planner and a city shaper. So welcome, Michael. How are you today? I'm very good and I'm overwhelmed by that introduction. So I I think it, uh, it prompted in me thinking about themes about, oh, what do planners really do? What are they good for? And how can we actually help? And I think there's some of the things we might talk about today. Absolutely. And look, you have you've done all of that throughout your career, which is definitely why I was I was wanting to have you as a guest today to to help inspire people and and to help people understand what planners do and and why we do what we do. So I'd like to start at the top. And the first question is, what would you say are your top career highlights? Okay, I think it falls into two groups. One is the things that you've mentioned in the introduction, you know, the big projects, they certainly were highlights for me. The Gold Coast planning scheme was a massive undertaking. It took years to put together. It was the first planning scheme for the amalgamated city. It was under the new, newish Integrated Planning Act. And so it was actually quite a learning experience for everyone. And it's the first big scheme or big amendment process and, and review that I was responsible for from start to finish. There were lots of people involved, but at, at Gold Coast City Council, when I joined it, we had a very small team to start with, um, a handful of people, myself, uh, a um, infrastructure engineer and two junior planners, and we kicked it all off. The first thing we did was, um, I think we did this properly, we did a strategic plan, a new strategic plan that wasn't the um, the uh, planning controls and mechanisms, it was the vision for the overall city. We called it, um, uh, what was it again? Building Sustainable Communities Gold Coast Strategic Plan. And there was a review by an academic um, soon after that made a big point about the fact that we use the word communities rather than community. And it was, and in my well, it was, well, Gold Coast is a really big city. And at that stage we had Dean Lee, to Coolangatta. So it wasn't one community, it was many communities. And that was part of the learning process. And also doing all of the, in a sense, quite old fashioned comprehensive planning, trying to pin down everything that was to hand about spatial distribution of activity and people across the whole Gold Coast. And that whole process was a uh, a um, community consultation process as well, which meant that um, we really had to get to know the people of the Gold Coast, involve them. And one thing that I learned there that I've um, continued to see throughout my career is that while people might have a bad experience with DA and then form a negative view of planners, when they're involved in strategic planning projects and in particular local area planning for their community, they love the fact that the council's asking about it. They have lots to contribute and provided you stay true to your work and keep them involved and keep them informed, they really come away with a good impression of planning and of councils. And so I, I found that very rewarding. 
and it was been really good to hear that the planning scheme was in place for well over a decade. Um, it was it was replaced and I sort of I was really busy at Brisbane at that stage, so I wasn't keeping close tabs on it, but I would hear bits and pieces and when I come back and stay. And so um, and you worked at Gold Coast, so you would have worked under the new scheme, but also the old one. Um, and so a question that sort of struck me, just a little passing one, is that um, the Gold Coast was sort of famous for um, plot ratio and how that impacted the skyline and also on the large number of local area plans that we had. And, and one of my favourites and one of my earliest ones was um, Chevron Island local area plan. And I remember we put in an infrastructure charging requirement for a pedestrian bridge and now there is one there. So, and so my question is, is that how come local area plans and um, plot ratio disappeared from the current city plan? Oh, look, Michael, how long have you got? That's a very interesting <laughs> question. Because <laughs> I think I, they're both great tools. And for the yeah. reasons that I just said is that it helps shape the look of the city, but also um, the local area plans is a great way to contact the community. Because often, you know, if it's citywide, they might and sort of make the effort to get involved. But if it's for Chevron Island or for Coolangatta or for Labrador, they'll certainly turn up. Yeah, and I, I look, I'll, I'll go some way to answering that. Not, not that I can speak on behalf of the city in, in any way, shape or form as I, I'm no longer uh, with them. But my understanding and my experience is that uh, the city does local planning. It just doesn't produce local plans. Yes. And so, uh, for example, uh, you know, uh, Chevron Island um, is is actually um, part of the major update to the planning scheme that's going through the state government right now. And that was a, a localised planning investigation to understand, as you say, that land use and infrastructure mix and what the next kind of generation of infrastructure and, and land use settings should be for Chevron Island to support it to, to grow into a village. So, Look, there certainly is um, local planning underway and, and, and the, the, um, the planners in there do a great job of engaging with the community at that local level uh, for all those initiatives. But uh, the structure of the city plan was was uh, so that it, it had sort of no local plans, which I think, it, you know, is something that maybe could be revisited at some point in the future. Uh, anyway, you're not meant to be asking me the questions. I'm supposed <laughs> to be asking you these questions. So what you said there was two uh, career highlights and you mentioned the big projects, but what's your second career highlight? Well, the, the other highlight was actually, and you mentioned some of the activities, is being involved in education and in also in uh, professional development of planners. So I got involved with PEER because I thought it's important. Well, I so a couple of reasons, you know, yes, I wanted to network and get to know all of the leaders in planning and, and across the state uh, in Victoria at the time. Um, and then it was um, about giving back, you know, after you've got some experience and you know a lot of people and you think, well, actually, this is a good way of giving back some of your knowledge and involvement. And then I was absolutely blown away when uh, Doug Baker from QUT's planning school said to me, would you like to be our inaugural planner in residence? And I was sort of focusing on other things at the time. And I thought, oh, I don't know, do I? And so I sort of agreed, but, you know, a bit tentatively. That was fantastic. It, a, it was my best job title ever. <laughs> and, and secondly, it was so, um, it was so innovating in, term, in terms of um, being involved with young people who were just kicking off their planning career and um, I started off doing guest lectures to every course in the school, and then 
after six months, they uh, Doug came and said, no, you're going to have to be teaching subjects as well. So I actually did a senior class. I think it was the third and fourth years, a design studio, and we looked at um, the new um, rail line to Redlands, not to Redlands, to Redcliffe, and the new stations. And so the project was to um, design planning around two of the five new stations and present your arguments as to how it could look and feel and what it would do for local people. The students loved it. I enjoyed it. I brought in Linda Bradbury from uh, the Moreton Bay Council and she um, came and spoke to them. And so that whole experience of being on the education side, I think really, really gave me a lot of value and a lot of interest. So I set that up with, you know, the other big projects as well. Yeah, fantastic. So I think that goes to the second question I have for you about what drives and motivates you as a planner today? So it's really understanding how planning works and what planners do. So in short term, it's like if we do anything useful, we're doing something about properly managing the community's resources to get good spatial outcomes. Good outcomes for the community, but that are expressed in how things are arranged, how people access services. And if you think about it, when you talk to non-planners about planning, their general view is that it's a good thing and it should be done. And they often will draw to your attention when if you're at a dinner party or a barbecue, they'll say, why haven't planners fixed issues with flooding? That's probably been a very topical one um, saying, why haven't you done your job properly? And so that's, um, no, a really sort of good point that they make. And the other one also, I hear is why why is there still, you know, congestion on the M1? <laughs> I was about to say the next one is traffic. Yes. You know, didn't anyone plan this? And again, at the at the base of their concern is that shouldn't this sort of stuff be what we think about as we um, approve new suburbs and estates? And so they're right. And I think that we need to be true to what we think planning is and what our uh, community thinks planning is and make, make sure that those things come together. And I think that um, raises an issue as to how useful we are in actually achieving these things. And um, the recent pandemic experience was a bit confronting for planners um, because it means that, uh, and hopefully it means that we rethink some of our long-term trends and evaluate again whether they indeed are worth keeping or whether we should you know, do some radical changes. So what I'm thinking about is that um, when we're all locked up, and luckily I just arrived back from Victoria and was living on the Gold Coast, what a fantastic place to endure those lockups and also great that I missed the Victorian longest lockups in the world, lockdowns in the world. Um, but uh, the first positive thing, planners have done a great job in distributing parkland and good quality parkland to all communities. So almost everybody I, I saw when we were, you know, doing our personal exercise in the parks and gardens and foreshores, they were alive with people. And I thought, thank God we have done a good job in that distributing good quality public open space. And that was, a, I think that's a really fantastic result and one that really helps with things like resilience and sustainability. So that's really, really good. What's not so good is that 
we discovered that um, high density doesn't work as well when you're required to stay in your dwelling for weeks on end. And in fact, the traditional quarter acre block and the versions of it was much, much better oriented to that. So hmm, maybe our density focus um, needs a little bit of a rethink. Um, and public transport. Suddenly public transport was a no-go zone. You uh, were heading into too close proximity to too many other people and isn't the car a safer and far more comfortable choice? We've wrestled with cars and public transport and car parking forever throughout my career. And I think, you know, we've come to accommodations, but we probably need to do a philosophical change, particularly as we think about electric cars and maybe one day driverless cars. So uh, there's a little driverless um, trial happening in Main Beach at the moment. And there's a cute little sort of pod car that you can jump in and you go around the suburb on a little route. And it's fantastic. There is an attendant there to make sure nothing goes wrong and to give you good info. But what struck me was I rode in exactly the same pod car podcast in Armadale in northern New South Wales three years ago. And I remember very similar ones being trialled on university campuses in Melbourne. It's like, what's happening with these Google cars? When are we actually going to get them so that we don't have to have car parking at the start and the finish of everybody's trip? So that could be something that um, happens in the future. But oh, and my then getting back to the points about learning from uh, the pandemic was also hmm, the death of CBDs and the um, question mark over mixed use is that hmm, maybe it's better to separate these things, but certainly have commercial services and activities and retail services a lot closer to home so that you can be more self-contained in those sort of 15 minute and 20 minute cities. So it's over now to a degree that we don't talk about it every day and there's one option is that we just lock back into our old way of thinking. Well, there's another one that says, well, we were challenged for two years. Are we really on the right track with what we were saying before? Is there a different way that we can think about um, how people are really attached to their cars and we have to provide really, really good public transport options to get them to change? And on a positive side, I love the tram on the Gold Coast. It's fantastic and I'll defend it to anyone. <laughs> I love it. And that's the motivations. And I just love how you uh you're 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 you know still critically thinking about these issues that you've been grappling with your entire career. You know, you you're sort of not wedded to a, a certain um response and you know, you're still driven and, and motivated to test and 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 refine and improve the way that we're we're thinking about and solving these challenges. I just think that's fantastic, Michael. The fact that you're still um thinking like that is so inspiring for for me and I'm sure for others listening too. I I wanted to ask you about what you see the main opportunities for cities and regions, particularly in Queensland and Australia into the future? I think you've captured some there, but how would you sort of describe those main opportunities? Okay, well, Southeast Queensland in particular, um, but Queensland broadly, um, the cities can grow into sort of a postmodern um, realm of being leisure cities. The Gold Coast is definitely a leisure city. 
I've recently been to central Queensland um, on a road trip and uh, all of the cities along the coast, particularly with the ones with the lagoons, the artificial lagoons, they are fantastic destinations and I'm sure that they're fantastic places to live. And again, from the pandemic, we had this idea of regional living being perhaps uh, a more viable choice now when compared to congested metropolitan areas. So it's like the real opportunity, I think, and Queensland's a huge place. The real opportunity is to revisit those old ideas about decentralization. Queensland is the most decentralized of the states in terms of large, larger regional cities. And I think we really need to see a bigger impetus on making sure that all the good quality things that people expect in a medium-sized and big city are actually provided. And I think health is probably one of the most important for people. But for me as a planner, it's certainly good urban design, good public realm, good public spaces so that people are proud of their city. Yeah, excellent. And on the flip side, what are the main challenges you think that we're facing in our cities and regions? Well, I think there is that confusion about what planners are good at and what they should do. And there are some huge problems, but I think for, we need to break it down to where planners can give their best input. So climate change, everyone talks about it. Every agency and institution wants to see action. What action can planners do in a practical sense? And I think it comes back, it, it refocuses some of our traditional ones, hazard management and hazard planning bushfires, floods, coastal erosion, um, conservation, biodiversity issues. They're all things that we've been involved in very much in the past. They need to be polished off and refocused and represented and with a much, much stronger focus on resilience. Um, were we resilient during the pandemic? No, we weren't. We panicked and went and bought toilet paper. No, it was sort of, <laughs> it was, uh, really really telling indictment of the preparation that we've all done so yes there's some physical things that we need to change there's some mental and sort of philosophical things we need to further develop and be good at what we do best and then know not to then spread it too thin because that's what everyone's doing you know we'll be bumping into the architects and the engineers and the whatever we want to work closely with them oh and that's another point it's an opportunity I've got a strong view that planners being starting off often as generalists are in a really good position to be better project managers and working with the other disciplines. So I think the fact that we actually are really well placed to talk with the community and to understand the community more than some of these other disciplines and we then if we become much better project managers than we've been in the past, um, we could actually deliver fantastic outcomes for councils, for state government, for consultants, um, where we've actually taken a leadership role because we're mediating between the community and all of the harder disciplines. We just need to be better at running a project and getting them done within budget and at the time that we said we would and not being distracted. I think that's sort of our biggest weakness. As we're burrowing along, we get distracted off on another path that kills the project or delays the project. And it means that we're not as effective as we are. And it means that the respect that the other professions have for us starts to sort of win away. But certainly in a council context, 
I've found that there's a lot of goodwill from the other professions to get on board with a planning project if they can see that it will help them deliver theirs. So that's a big opportunity. Project uh, planners as leaders and project managers, that's what I'd like to promote. I love it. I'd, I'd like to touch on that point that you raised around high density and also around one of the challenges that I'm seeing and that some of my other guests have raised around the housing crisis and just sort of tease out a little bit um, at your comment about if high density is not the solution, then what is? Okay, so I definitely think high density is part of the solution, um, but I think that the more balanced approach and also taking account the preferences of suburban Australians is that they want space. And they so in a sense, there's been, and the planning professions recognise that with that idea of the missing middle, the medium density, relatively low rise, but still getting a lot of people into a suburb or a precinct. So I'm thinking that the solution for planners is to actually provide that diversity of product that we've talked about before, but weren't very good at delivering in our planning schemes. It's sort of trying to lead the market, but the developers know a lot more about the market than we do and um, getting thwarted all the time with our beautiful drawings never actually turning into the suburb that um, we're after. So that's sort of one part of it, which is the physical planning controls that um, that allow different types of models of housing. Then there's all of the other initiatives. I, I was involved in Frankston, uh, my most recent council, um, in a lot of issues to do with homeless, with affordable housing. Frankston has all sorts of social issues, but it also has great disparities between very, very rich people and very, very poor. And there was a lot, a lot of work done in terms of enhancing um, social and welfare housing, and in particular, publicly owned housing. So my personal preference, and I haven't seen it done really, really well, is that state governments have dropped the ball in terms of public housing. They've tried to deliver public housing for less money through innovative solutions, but it's sort of like an equation that's really, really stark, which is back in the 60s, state governments were able to have five and more percent of all housing in public ownership. Frankston, uh, when I was there, had less than 3%. So it's like, hmm, it's actually a numbers game. We're not delivering enough. And it's not so much where it is and what type it is. It can be any sort of housing, but let's actually make a difference in terms of numbers. Now, provision of public housing is enormously expensive, so there must be better ways of doing it. But in the end, I think unless we hold state governments, they're the ones with the responsibility for housing to say there's a proportion of the Australian public, and I think it's going to be somewhere between five and 10% that will have always have difficulty, no matter what the economy is like, will have difficulty getting housing. Shouldn't the state be providing housing for um, both welfare re re recipients and people who have an affordability issue in getting into market housing? and I'd love to see that we every state delivering 10% of its housing in public ownership. Yeah, I love it. What an aspiration. All right, last question for you today, and it's the big one in my mind. How would you describe the value that planners bring to improving our cities and regions? 
Okay, so I've talked about a lot of the big things that we do, and they're certainly worthy and important. Uh, a lot of my best satisfaction came from working on local area plans, suburban centre improvement programs, just projects that talk to people about how do we make your local area more attractive, more usable, and a better place to live. And they were intensely rewarding to, I found, to the people we worked with, um, but also to me. So the Brisbane's um, Langways and Small Spaces program, what a fantastic program. That's the one I loved the best when I was there. And now as I walk around Brisbane, um, I go to little nooks and crannies and I go, oh, it's still here and there's people using it and it's a great place. There's some that sort of faded away and got affected by roadworks and have disappeared, but it's those improvements. Ah, and this is the theory that I stumbled across at the time and which I think is really important for planners to absorb. At the time, it was called urban acupuncture, which is an intervention treating the city as a, as a body and making a discrete intervention at key locations that will make the body more alive and more healthy. And the idea behind it is that it doesn't have to be expensive. They can, some of these small spaces and languages were tiny projects, um, but they could grow and be really big projects. But the thing is you just do a lot of discrete them. And the whole idea is that as you get money and resources, you do more and you maintain them as well, and you make sure that they're not going to be you know, too costly in their maintenance. Um, but over time, you will actually improve the city and you'll have done it in partnership with the property owners, with the people who live there, and with architects and designers and whatever. So um, it's that gradual change. Oh, the modern name for it is tactical urbanism, um, but I don't like that as much because that's more about, you know, Rush, you know, rushing in and putting up something possibly illegally and rushing out again. No, do it properly the whole way. Do it in complete partnership with all of those people. Deliver something that makes people proud, proud of their city. I think Gold Coast City Council recently has done some great work. The foreshore and many of the parks and reserves are just brilliant. And public buildings, Potter as the new art gallery. What a fantastic addition to the city. And it's, you can see how it challenges people from out of the Gold Coast to go, hmm, it's a bit loud, but I do like it. Oh, <laughs> and you know, I'm trying, and then when they actually go and visit it and see all the great works there, they go, oh, this is something the Gold Coast really needed. And I think, yes, so it's um, being in partnership with people and being proud of where they live and being able to then revisit all of these projects and see that they actually worked. Now, a challenge for planners, and I think it's a modern challenge, is that we have to stay true to our um, own values as to what a good city is. And, you know, we need to think about it when it's challenged, but we need to stay true to it because I've heard in some of the work of um, registered planners that I've been assessing that, and there's a, a standard question on public engagement, um, that they say, oh, the planner's role is to faithfully record what the public say and take it back. No, that's part of the role. But the council or the um, state government or whatever is not doing this project um, for no reason. They're doing it for a good planning reason. So as part of the engagement with people, you need to be able to transfer knowledge and provide you know, good data and information. 
and then get informed feedback so that um, in the process of rolling out, you know, mixed uses or greater densities or new civic infrastructure, you're listening to people and faithfully recording their responses, but you're also giving them information about why it's being proposed and why it will be good and what issues can they see where they might uh, have some conflicts that you can address or that they think might be a better way of delivering it. So the planner needs to, in doing consultation, don't throw away all of your responsibilities, is that be proud of the fact that you've got an expertise, that you are applying it for a good reason, and be prepared to defend it. Absolutely. I think that's a that's awesome and such a well well described way of uh, of helping planners bring their knowledge to to all of these situations. Look, Michael, that's been a great conversation and we do need to wrap it up, but I would like to ask if there's any kind of final parting wisdom that you would like to leave with our listeners today. Oh, hard hard to do it. I think stick at it is that um try not to be well, maybe this is just my approach, but I'm saying you can do it in a quiet way and be really, really effective, but you know, be considered valuable um, by all of the people you work with, the community, your your bosses, the councillors, other disciplines, but do it in a way that you're really grounded in your values and people respect that. So, you know, someone asked me about, oh, aren't planners can be, you know, done for hire or just bureaucrats or whatever. So, well, some might be, but most that I know are really passionate about uh, having good results from their work and get up every day wanting to make a difference. And I think, you know, you can be a sort of a quiet achiever that hold true to those values. Thank you so much, Michael. That's been so inspiring and you're so generous with your time. It's been lovely to get to know you and your career and what drives you and um, and keep doing the amazing work that you're doing. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. And thank you for tuning into the Hustle and Bustle podcast this week. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and a review. You can follow the show on Instagram and LinkedIn too. That's all from the episode. Thanks again for listening. I'll catch you next time. Bye for now.